Welcome to an audio-only episode of Friends and Neighbors, a podcast from Mr. Rogers and Me filmmakers, the Wagner Brothers, in which we discuss depth and simplicity in an often shallow and complex world. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and today, New York One journalist, Roger Clark. So many cool things have happened in my life when I've quieted the worried voices in my head, stuck out my hand, and introduced myself to a perfectly good stranger. Roger Clark was one of those perfectly good strangers. It was the fourth year of our annual holiday benefit event in New York City, somewhere in the early aughts. We were looking to make the event bigger, better, brighter, to add some star power. So my friend Chris Abad suggested asking New York One's beloved morning anchor, Pat Kiernan, to host. And I said, what about Roger Clark? Roger is to New York One what Jeannie Most is to CNN. When there's a hurricane, Roger's on the beach in the Rockaways. When there's a hot dog eating contest, Roger's on the boardwalk in Coney Island. And when the Ramones exhibit opens at the Queens Museum, Roger's first in line in Flushing Meadows. And so I emailed him. And a few days later, there we were. Roger, Chris, social justice comedian Nagin Farsad and me, all locked in an MTV conference room improvising around my unfunny promo skit, just as well as could have been hoped. A few nights later, Roger and Nagin were front and center at a holiday benefit, cracking wise and raising money for kids' literacy. And a few months after that, Roger, his wife Jenny, and son Jack met Abby, Maggie, and me to share sandwiches on a picnic blanket in Central Park. We were all new parents, all overwhelmed, all juggling day jobs and toddlers as well as we could. Then, as prior and since, I loved Roger's honesty, vulnerability, and approachability. He's sweet, thoughtful, a regular guy. Ten years later, Jack and Maggie are in middle school. Roger remains a New York One fixture, Spectrum Cable's affable Anderson Cooper. And we decided it was time to catch up. What we found was even more in common than we could have ever imagined. Born in Bronx, raised in Queens. Like, what was that like? My mom grew up near Yankee Stadium, practically a couple of blocks away. So when I was born as a baby, it was at Bronx Lebanon Hospital, which is on the Grand Concourse, which my grandmother used to call the Fifth Avenue of the Bronx. My grandparents moved to Forest Hills, Queens, and we went to Staten Island, where my dad's from originally. He grew up in the Mariners Harbor section of Staten Island. So we kind of split it up there. And then sadly, my folks split up themselves a couple of years, about three years later, four years later. So that's when we joined my grandparents in Forest Hills, uh, Queens. So that was my third borough is by the time I was seven. I've always liked the, the, the old school aspects of Brooklyn, Ellen B. Spumoni Gardens for pizza, you know, great Italian pastry, Coney Island, of course. I love Coney Island. It's so fun there. Um, we used to go when I was a kid to King's Plaza shopping mall because I had an Aunt Lenore and Uncle Warren who lived in Coney Island. And we were coming from Queens, so we'd meet them in the middle. King's Plaza is like Marine Park, Canarsie area. And we would go to Cookie Steak Pub. And it was exciting because they had the all-you-can-eat salad bar and they had the, this banana bread. And it was so good. <laughs> I don't know what it was like some kind of evil recipe that made you crave it. It was delicious. And I, me, and my sister, we were just like, we couldn't wait to get there just to get the stupid banana bread. Banana bread is like an underappreciated bread. I would say and like, no joke. It's a, just like a top bread. It was good. They had this French dressing at the salad bar. It was the best French dressing. You know, it's so funny. Like when you're a kid, little things impress you. For us, fine dining. We, we couldn't wait to get there. <laughs> there's, there's something about that type of detail and observation that you just shared with me. That kind of detail is so you to me. 
And the way you share it, there is a joy to it. Almost like we're sitting across at the place, like you took us there. I wonder if that enthusiasm is part of what you bring every day to your stories. I never want to go into any story like I know everything, like I'm a know-it-all, like I know more than the person I'm interviewing. I like to kind of be surprised. I like to have that sense of wonder about these discoveries that I make. I want the people at home to know I was really astounded. That's the whole point. That's the thing. Just like the banana bread. There's a lot of culture that's like, these are the things I don't like. And they define themselves by the opposite. You know what I mean? But I feel like you have, I don't know whether it's self-confidence or joie de vivre to just be like, these are great things, you know? I've done a lot of things for the first time through the job. I'm not a fan of sushi, but it was Bronx Restaurant Week. And I sat down with the borough president, Ruben Diaz, and they brought sushi. So what am I supposed to do? So the fun we had with it was me trying sushi for the first time, rather than me being like, Ugh, I don't like sushi. Yeah. You try new things, you learn new things, and you, you embrace that. And, and that's what, you know, I think that's what the city's all about. We tend to stay in our neighborhoods. If you're in Brooklyn, you're like, ah, I don't want to go to Queens. If you're in Manhattan, ah, I'm never going to Brooklyn. And even being a kid, we barely got into Manhattan. I didn't really discover Manhattan, I hate to say it, until I got the job in New York One. This shiny set of reflective buildings across the river. Yeah, I mean, that's really what it was. Or it's the place that you like, th that my grandmother would take me once a year to, you know, to go see the Macy's window and go to this place, Bun and Burger, and, and have lunch. And it was like a big deal. You know, it was like, we're in the city. Stuyvesant, dude, talk to me about what that experience was like. I remember I took the test. It's funny, I, I was on Staten Island that morning and my grandmother was visiting and I woke up on Staten Island and went to like, remember Perkins Pancake House? I took the test and somehow I, you know, it was crazy. We had an, uh, an assembly at my junior high in Queens and they were like, okay, we're now going to announce everybody who got into the specialized schools. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was funny. So they did Brooklyn Tech, Bronx Science. And they're like, and now the Stuyvesant people and they're going through all the names and it was all the smart kids, you know? And all of a sudden, like, Roger Clark. <laughs> and I swear, the kids who, they're like, no, not him. No. I'm more interested in what makes us who we are. But what I found interesting, I think because of your curiosity and your, like, joie de vivre, you don't end your choice to not come off as smarty pants. It was a little bit of a surprise, but that's also a very inside baseball New York surprise. Like, you'd have to know the schools and all that thing. But I was, I was like, ah, see, Roger's secret weapon is he's really fucking brilliant. I talked to an organization of student newspaper editors a couple of weeks ago, and I told them when they asked for advice, I said, learn stuff, like know about everything. You don't like sports? Watch a baseball game, figure out how it works, because you might get thrown on a baseball story one day and you're going to sound like a knucklehead when you don't know about baseball. Learn about history, learn about local history. Learn about who the mayors of New York City were if you're working in New York. You remember in the old days, they used to tell you when you went for a job interview in a town, pick up the morning paper and yeah, sure. read it. Yeah. So, and I think that definitely, if I give Stuyvesant any credit is for making me a well-rounded person. I was fortunate enough to have Frank McCourt, who wrote Angela's Ashes as my English teacher. And he was amazing. And he taught me a lot about, not just about writing, but about life. So there was a lot of good stuff there, you know, and, then, and, I, and I followed the same rule at Syracuse where we went. Now I went there for broadcast journalism because of the Newhouse School and it's a great program, but there was other classes with some great faculty there. I minored in religion. My mom's Jewish and my dad's Catholic. And I always grew up going to mass, going to temple, doing this, doing that. So it was always like a confusion for me in some cases. So when I got to Syracuse, I jumped on it. I soaked it up. I wanted to, I didn't want to skip classes. I want to learn. And I think that really came in handy in my career, like in a crazy way. 
I think part of that's your temperament because you have that curiosity and it sounds like you cultivate it, like you kind of task yourself with that as part of your approach to the work. But that's such an interesting fact, the idea of Judaism and Catholicism. You know, in Mr. Rogers, our movie, really what I think we're trying to get at is what are the fundamental values that we share as humans? What are the commonalities, right? So I suspect what you began to work out is like, what were the fundamentals that these two really oppose? Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, just like you talk with Mr. Rogers, just like to be friendly to people, to be nice, yeah. to address people in a good way. Yeah. I've kind of tried to live my life that way. I mean, I'm not saying I'm 100% perfect. I've definitely made mistakes. We all have. That being said, I have some sad memories of getting picked on outside yeah. of synagogue by kids whose parents were supposedly the uh, elders of the synagogue because those kids are rebelling against their parents. I remember it was like Yom Kippur and the rabbi's up there and I had a kid's service and I'm raising my hand every five seconds. I walk outside and I, I'm getting punched <laughs> because they're like, you're not supposed to be smart. You hadn't discovered like punk rock rebellion quite yet. No, no, no. When my parents split up, you know, I didn't have my dad around. And my dad was kind of like a tough street guy, but I only saw him once a week. So I didn't have the influence. When, when I met you, I was like, this guy's great. We have a lot in common <laughs> because my parents divorced. I lived with my mom. I rarely saw my dad. And as a result, and I think this is just, you're saying this with different languages, I didn't have a male role model to literally play catch with. And my mom, God bless her, was doing her best, but she couldn't do it all. So I understand what you mean. I didn't feel um, like I had some of the masculine capabilities that the other dudes did, you know? Even like changing oil, right? Right. Totally. I mean, something stupid like that. I, I got my first car and, and, and the engine died because I never changed the oil. Why didn't I change the oil? Well, nobody ever told me to. I did the same thing with brakes. That should have been more apparent, right? Than oil. I mean, oil, you can't see. Brakes, you could begin to hear and smell. But I was like, I don't know. I think it's fine. I still can't really tie a tie. My mom sent me up to Queens Boulevard to our barber to tie my tie. Nowadays, that's my wife half the time still, at least if it's a bow tie, right? Was your sister older? My sister, we were uh, what they what you call Irish twins. She was 16 months younger. We were pretty close in age. So two grades. She was definitely cooler than me. It sounds like we were roughly the same age. I was around seven. My wife's parents got divorced when she was in college. So maybe it impacted you less or more. Who knows? Yeah, it's tough to know the calculus. But it's interesting. It sounds like you kind of wanted to show up and just keep delivering and be steady. And in my family, my role was sort of the like, hey, everybody, everything's fine. You know what I mean? I would be like, let me sing you a song. You know what I mean? I would just kind of try and bring everything down in terms of the escalation, not the sadness, trying to lighten everybody up. It sounds like you were just trying to keep it stable, keep on cooking, keep getting those grades. My mom was sad. She dated different guys. And I'm sure you went through this too. Like, you know, one week it would be a phone guy in the house and she was, it was a cop who would stay over. But I still remember there was this, he was a big guy named Frank and he showed up and, and he brought us a Mickey Mouse calculator and a red transistor radio. It looked like it, obviously like, as they say, fell off a truck. It was very hectic. My thing was I tried to, you know, I played sports. I listened to music. I love music. You know, I got into the drums as, you know, we, you know, the track, the school newspaper, the yearbook. I did anything I could to stay out of that apartment because it was so yeah. crazy in there. Yeah. yeah. And it was too much sometimes. Then with between me and my sister and my mom, they're fighting. And it was just, you know, it was, it was, it was tough. It wasn't a peaceful atmosphere. So I needed to be out, you know, yeah. as much as I could. And I kept busy. It was the only way to survive. That's such a neat insight on who you are to me as a guy who ultimately had a very similar upbringing. And it was what brought Fred and I together. We bonded, if you recall, in the movie because he asked me about my parents' divorce. So yeah, completely contextual and particularly because we're the same generation. So we grew up with him and he knew this was happening. Watching Mr. Rogers, you know, and I think a lot of people can say this, he had 
such a calming influence. Yeah. You know, when things are really bad around the house, like, you know, we had a small one bedroom apartment You know, my mom's sleeping on a pullout couch. She's not working. Things are lousy. She's very, uh, God bless her, very volatile, you know, all the stuff. And you always knew though, when you turned on channel 13 here in New York, he was there. Uh, you know, him and Sesame Street, electric company, you know, things like that. So like a guy like Mr. Rogers, who was a calming influence and you would feel like, all right, there's love out there. And you're like, all right, I got to find that love. Yeah. Somewhere. I've heard this for 20 years now, right? Thank goodness we could find it there. You know, he was working with some of the best learning development and scientists, psychologists in the, the country at the time. Again, thank goodness, right? Because a lot of kids would have been in a lot of trouble. Tell me about the Qs. How did you get up to the Qs? I wanted to be a sportscaster. In my junior year of high school, I saw an article in Sports Illustrated about how Marv Albert had gone there and Bob Costas, yeah. Dick Stockton, this whole list of great broadcasters. And I was sold right there. Syracuse was where I got hooked playing music. It's when I started playing in basements and attics and stuff and venues. I had a little band at high school, uh, senior year called Early Jitters. And it was just one of those deals where I had these drumsticks from seventh grade band. And I tried to get into the eighth grade band at junior high, but Mr. Pav, the band teacher said I had no rhythm. I don't think he was the greatest judge of talent. I, know, I was pretty good, I thought. But then years later, but I always had the drumsticks and I would play on coffee cans and on phone books and stuff. And then senior year, my buddy Ronnie played bass and it's like, I wish we knew somebody to play drums. And I was like, well, I have drumsticks. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the starter kit right here. <laughs> and I had no idea what I was doing. We went to this like little rehearsal studio on 2nd Avenue in the East Village. We did a showcase night at CBGB's, but we, I mean, we were so bad. I mean, it was just, we were horrible. I didn't even know how to use the bass drum. How thrilling was that? Were you going to rock shows, punk shows when you were a young, when you were a teenager? I was more going to the arena rock stuff. Yeah. You know, I was into, you know, the who and the kinks yeah. and the punk stuff. Actually, I listened to it, but I think I was still a little too sheltered at that point to go see a show down there. How long have you been playing as an adult? I met the bass player in the band. I went to see her old band and we were talking. And then one day she goes, yeah, we broke up. And I said, oh, well, we should play. And then added our guitar player, who's a guy from my neighborhood in Yorkville, a great guy, retired cop. And that was the rest of his history. Your LinkedIn suggests that you started at New York One like a couple of weeks before 9-11. Is that right? I think my start date was August 19th. I had planned the trip with my buddy from college to Lake Tahoe, which I had never been to California. So went there for Labor Day weekend, came back. I did a couple of stories on my own and then boom. Wow. And it was it's funny. I was away from a major city for almost 10 years, a little more laid back lifestyle. And I was starting to think, can I do this? This town is nuts. This town is absolutely nuts. I love it. I grew up here, I, but it's nuts. Then 9-11 happened and then there was no turning back. There was no turning back at that point because now I felt like I had to be part of the rebuilding and the regrowth of this place and I was going to be reporting on it. So even though I wasn't sure if I belonged here anymore, I knew then that I did in a crazy way. It was like a, the idea of it forged in a furnace. Like it was it's such a massive experience, right? Such a substantive experience that it just kind of bonded you to the place and the, and the work. I hated covering funerals uh, back in the day. And then I wound up covering them for months over, and sometimes twice a day. I met a lot of good people. And you talk about people who were going through adversity. I was walking into living rooms of people who had just lost their daughter or their husband. I mean, after I was done with the interview, I would go into my car and I'd cry. And funerals, I would do the same thing. It was crazy. It seemed like it would never end. And then, you know, somehow 
we got back. And now I never thought anything would eclipse that, but this pandemic was pretty crazy. In my 25 years there, I found New York City to be rife with a certain type of hipster cognoscenti to whom black is the only color, downtown is the only neighborhood, and nothing is cool. They define themselves in opposition. I don't go above 14th Street. I only eat Zabar's bagels. The city ends at the Hudson River. Roger, though, retains a childlike wonder in every story. He manifests a sense of play, cultivates a beginner's mind, and humbly, thoughtfully, and enthusiastically asks deep and simple questions. His connection to the people of New York is clear in every segment. Fred Rogers said that our society is more interested in information than wonder, and in noise rather than silence. I feel like we need a lot more wonder and a lot more silence in our lives. In modeling that wonder, Roger reminds us all, like Amy Hollingsworth and Bo Lozoff before him, to stay curious, present, and patient, and open for every facet of our lives. It's so important, Fred reminds us, no matter what you may do professionally, to keep alive some of the healthy interests of your youth. Children's play is not just kid stuff, it's the stuff of future invention. Friends and Neighbors is a Wagner Brothers production. Download our podcast on Apple, stream it on Spotify, watch it on Facebook or YouTube, and subscribe to our newsletter at friendsandneighborshow.com. And if you're moved or inspired by what we're doing here, please, for heaven's sakes, rate, comment, and share Friends and Neighbors with your friends and neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and until next week, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. (laughs) 